Darkcast Network, the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hello, listeners. We're so very happy you could join us here at the Darkcast Network for the second part of our holiday stories. Are you comfy? Snacks and cider nearby? Great! It's time to hear from our nice list of stories. Hi everyone, my name is Jackie Moranti, and I have a podcast called Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight. I talk about all the things not true crime that will kill you. I talk about disease, war, socioeconomics, global crises, and a lot of history. It's pretty dark. Last year, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, I talked about the history of Ukraine and how the Russians have been treating Ukrainians for centuries. I even interviewed someone who had gone to Ukraine to bring supplies in and bring people out. That war is still going on, and it's senseless, and it's terrible. Today, though, I'm bringing you a happier story from Ukraine. I'm going to tell you why Ukrainians put spider webs on their Christmas trees. There once was a woman who lived in a very small hut with her children. Her husband had passed away a few years before, and she had to work hard to keep the family together, so they were very poor. It was harder for women to make their own way back then, and they weren't allowed to do the work that paid well, so this woman had to work very, very hard to keep her family together. Outside of their hut, there was a large pine tree, and one day a pine cone fell from the tree. The pine cone ended up buried deep in the soil under the larger tree, and it began to grow. The children were so excited that they might have a Christmas tree of their very own that they tended to the tree until it became big enough that they could bring it inside and decorate it. They did just that. They dug up the tree and put it in a bucket so it wouldn't die. Then they brought it inside for Christmas. That's when they realized that they didn't have ornaments to put on the tree. They had a tree but they were too poor to decorate it. The children were very sad, as was the widow woman. The youngest of the children sobbed when he realized that the tree would be bare. There would be no lights and no ornaments to adorn it. A family of spiders had been living in the house with the woman and the children for generations. Remember that spider generations are a lot shorter than human generations. The spiders were grateful to the family for allowing them to live in the hut with them. The woman nor her children ever stepped on them or put them outside, and for that they felt indebted to the family. The spiders could not allow the tree to remain bare on Christmas morning, so the spiders made a plan. After the family was asleep, the spiders went to the tree and began spinning webs all around and through the branches. They worked all night until the entire tree was covered in thin, loose webs that danced on the draft that came through the windows. When they were finished, they went back to their lair in the walls to watch as the family woke to find their handiwork. As the sun rose, the family began to stir. The smaller children were, of course, up first, and upon seeing the tree, they were so happy that they ran to their mother's room and told her that she must come look. Mama, Mama, come see the tree. Look what the spiders have done. The woman rushed from her room to see what the children were shouting about. Spiders? What could they have done to the tree? Then she saw it. The spider webs were hung with such elegant and silky patterns, and they were moving in the draft from the window. The sun shone bright that morning, and it slid along the floor and slowly moved up the trees. As the rays of the sun hit the spider webs on the tree, they began to glitter silver and gold, and this made the tree sparkle in the sun. Every year after, the family would bring in their tree and let the spiders decorate it for them. And from that day forward, the woman never felt poor. She felt grateful for all that life had given her. Today, it's tradition in Ukraine to make spider webs out of paper and metal and hang these ornaments on the tree. The ornaments are called pavuchki, which means little spiders. They also decorate the tree with artificial spider webs. It's also said that the tradition of putting tinsel on the tree comes from this story. In Ukraine, Poland, and Germany, to find a spider web on your Christmas tree is good luck, and spiders represent prosperity. 
I hope that you enjoyed this story and a little look into some folklore from Ukraine. I want to thank the Darkcast Network for allowing me to tell this story. I'd also like to invite you to listen to Cause of Death 100 Seconds to Midnight, where you can listen to other stories about history. Thank you for listening. Happy Holidays! My name is Jessica, and I'm one-third of the hosts of California True Crime, a podcast that focuses on crimes and history in California. California has lots of holiday traditions, but none of them are more California than the Hollywood Christmas Parade. Every year, the focus of this parade, at least as shown on TV, are famous movie, TV, and music stars. But if you live in the area and watch the parade live, you're able to see local entries and sometimes Hollywood history as it drives down Hollywood Boulevard. But this parade has an incredible history that dates back to 1928, when it first began not as a parade, but as something we're all intimately familiar with, as a reason to get people out and shop. It's hard to imagine a world where the Christmas shopping experience was not filled with bright lights, pine trees, and Mariah Carey endlessly singing that all she wants for Christmas is you. But prior to the 1920s, the shopping experience was a far more pragmatic experience. That's not to say that people didn't buy things they didn't need, or fashion and opulence weren't a thing, but people tended to shop near them, in local stores. This was way before big malls were everywhere and Black Fridays and whole families piling into cars for destination shopping. So in an effort to draw shoppers to Hollywood Boulevard, the Hollywood Boulevard Association was born. And it was decided that every business on Hollywood Boulevard, between Vine Streets and La Brea Avenue, would be decorated in the most fantastic Christmas decorations to get people excited and to come out and shop. This month-long celebration included a Santa Claus who would make the journey on his sleigh down Hollywood Boulevard, often over the years pulled by real reindeer. The 1920s are a huge deal in movie history, as Warner Brothers pioneered sound technology in movie theaters, and Hollywood, California became the movie capital of the world. Good economic times meant movie viewership soared, and by 1929, 110 million people were going to the movies every week. Of course, this meant that movie studios got in on the action of the celebration on Hollywood Boulevard, and this area was rechristened Santa Claus Lane. Street signs were changed, and over 200 evergreen trees lined the entire length of the lane. These trees ranged from 12 to 15 feet tall, and they were covered in lights. Two very famous men got in on the action. They worked especially hard to make Santa Claus Lane magical, and they were Charles Toberman, who was known as the Daddy of Hollywood, and Sid Grauman of Grauman's Chinese Theater. These two men were largely responsible for some of the innovations we've seen in movies, and in particular, into turning actors into celebrities. These men had access to incredible stage props and the people who made them, and they lined the streets with things like the giant statues from the movie Noah's Ark. It was also arranged that a movie star would ride with Santa in his sleigh during each trip down Hollywood Boulevard, and the month-long celebration only got bigger from here. A corral was actually built to house the reindeer, so people could visit them every day right on Hollywood Boulevard. Movie houses handed out free tickets to movies, and the decorations got even bigger. With access to some of the greatest creative minds in Hollywood in the 1930s, including a man named Otto K. Olson, who was known for completely pioneering a new lighting technique, and who was still responsible for how many movies and TV are lit today. The decorations could obviously only become more amazing. Olsen created brand new metal Christmas trees, built by hand and standing 25 feet tall along the street. These trees were illuminated by six different colors of lights and candles that stood four feet tall. Not only that, but in the 1930s, when Santa drove his sleigh down the boulevard, spectators retreated to a real live Hollywood snowstorm, created by using the same techniques directors used on set. Snow machines were employed, and people stood atop buildings also dropping snow to enhance the effect. But that isn't all, because things like lamppost costumes were created. These costumes went on every lamppost along the road, and they consisted of two stars near the top. Each star was three feet in diameter. Below those stars were miniature Christmas trees, and below those trees were big, illuminated Christmas wreaths. 
each wreath held the picture of a famous actor or actress from the time period. And below each wreath was a red bow that was six feet in diameter. Inside those wreaths and riding with Santa would be famous people like Betty Davis, John Barrymore, Mary Pickford, and Jackie Cooper, just to name a few. And of course, this magical scene worked. In 1933, Santa Claus Lane on Hollywood Boulevard saw over 35,000 people visit daily. This obviously created traffic problems, but honestly, what doesn't in Los Angeles? Every year, there would be more and more lights, more decorations, more celebrities, and radio even picked up opening night when one lucky celebrity would get to flip the switch and turn the whole lane on. And Santa's nightly ride down Hollywood Boulevard also started to become more like a parade, with bands and floats joining in on the excitement. But this celebration would come to a halt during the 1940s, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and America's entrance into World War II. During this time, places like California were prohibited from having lights on at night for fear of bombings, and decorations for Christmas were taken indoors with doors closed and window curtains drawn. Much of the decor that was created for Santa Claus Lane was metal, so it was torn apart and melted down to be used in the war effort. Even things like Christmas lights were taken apart so the electrical parts themselves could be put to use in the war. Even so, the association wanted some Christmas on Santa Claus Lane, and so small trees were put out, but absolutely no lights were added. But there was a lot of ingenuity happening, as 25-feet papier-mâché Santa Clauses were created and put out on the lane. This was definitely a subdued celebration, but a way to still celebrate Christmas nonetheless. When the war ended in 1945, the association was ready, and they went all out to celebrate the holiday, but also the ending of the war. This is also when this celebration more fully turns into a single parade, and it's called the Parade of Stars. It's also broadcast on NBC, and it really is a parade of stars. At the time in the 50s and 60s, people like Groucho Marx, Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz became headliners. In 1955, there were 400 celebrities in the parade, from both movies and television. Bozo the Clown was on a float. There was a float that was a replica of Space Patrol's Terra 4. This was a TV show, and the entire cast was on the float, and that became commonplace for this parade. Famous cowboys were in the parade and their famous horses. Roy Rogers, Del Elvins, Bill Boyd, Gene Autry. Lots of animals too. Lassie was a big draw for the parade. But also big animals. This parade had elephants, camels, mules, and in 1955, the only known trained bull in the world. In the 1960s, parade attendance started to diminish, mainly because people could watch it on TV, but the celebrities kept coming. In 1968, Buddy Ebsen of the Beverly Hillbillies had the honor of riding with Santa, and the parade included such interesting things as the Batmobile, the car from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the Monkey's Car, the Mannix Roadster, and Art Linklater's Dragster. In the 1980s, this parade really becomes about TV and the stars people see during the week on their televisions. Disney also takes part with characters riding in the parade and shows like Dynasty and The Facts of Life. And of course, daytime soap opera celebrities were common sightings. These days, the parade takes place on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It remains a nighttime parade and is usually broadcast on the CW. This year's parade, in 2022, the Grand Marshal was none other than Danny Trejo, who we love at California True Crime. It was hosted by Dean Kane, Montel Williams, Laura McKenzie, Elizabeth Stanton, and Eric Estrada. It's now referred to as the Hollywood Christmas Parade, and it also included one of my favorite things in parades, some small balloons, including Mighty Mouse and Betty Boop. But looking back, it's hard to match the pageantry and the magic of the parade and the events surrounding it that took place in the 20s and 30s. It truly would have been an amazing experience to stand on Santa Claus Lane on Hollywood Boulevard and experience the movie magic that actors and directors get to put on every day. Thank you for listening to the history of the Hollywood Christmas Parade. For more information, you can check out our hour-long episode on the topic and pictures at CaliforniaTrueCrime.com. We at California True Crime hope you have a wonderful holiday.
My name is Keely. I am the host of a true crime and paranormal podcast here on the Darkcast Network called Misty Mysteries. It's the holiday season. I hope that you're snuggled somewhere comfy with some yummy, yummy treats and that you're ready to hear about a magical holiday spirit from the Nordic countries. These little spirits are known by a couple of different names. In Norway and Denmark, they are known as the Nesser. In Sweden, they are known as the Tomter. And in Finland, they are known as the Tomtu. The Tomter range in size. The biggest are thought to be 90 centimeters or 35 inches. In images of the Tomter, they are normally side by side with cats and around the same size. These little spirits look like old men with long white beards. They dress in traditional farm clothing like tunics, stockings, and leather boots. And to top off their outfits, they always wear bright red pointed hats. It's believed these spirits are made in the image of the man who originally farmed the lands who may be buried on or nearby the lands, though this man is unknown. The Tomter lives on farms and homesteads, sleeping in the barn with the livestock or in the pantry of the home. They have very important jobs, and that is to watch over the home, to protect it from misfortune and evil, and to take care of the livestock. Though they are tiny, they are stronger than humans and have special bonds with the livestock. If treated right, they will make sure that the families have all that they need for a thriving home, and the livestock will always be well cared for. The Tomter have the strongest bond with the horses. They will even braid their manes and tails overnight. But if the family they care for takes out these braids, neglects or abuses their livestock, becomes lazy in their chores, or treat the Tomter badly, they can turn very mischievous. In their mischievous ways, much like fairies, they will hide the family's belongings and play tricks on them like tying the tails of cows together. They can even become invisible, which just adds to their mischievous ways. The best way to prevent any mischief from the Tomter is to leave out bowls of julgroot, a Christmas rice porridge topped with butter, sugar, and cinnamon. This is especially important on Christmas. Now, the Tomter did not used to be associated with Christmas, but this is holiday stories, so how did they get to be part of holiday traditions? After Christianity made its way to the Nordic countries, the Tomter was deemed as evil instead of good as they always had been before. They were used in witch trials to condemn farmers that had good fortune, but in 1881, a Swedish magazine changed everything for the Tomter by releasing a poem called The Tomter by Victor Rindenberg. This poem tells the tale of an old lonely Tomter who walks the farm on a cold, snowy winter night, talking and caring for all of the animals. He even looks over the children who were sleeping, wishing that he could speak to them before he himself went to bed in the hen house with the barn cat. When this poem was published, this was the first illustration of the Tomter, depicting the Tomter walking past a window in the snow. This story evolved to the belief of the Julian Tomter, a Tomter who rides in a sleigh pulled by a Yule goat. This Tomter brings gifts to children as they sleep on Christmas Eve, but he does not go through the chimney, he goes through the front door. Very similar to the Julian Tomter, there are also the Julian Nesser, but the Julian Nesser is portrayed as an older, adult-sized man with a long white beard and a red hat with a suit much like a little old Saint Nick many of us know and love. He carries a sack of toys on his back, visiting children on Christmas Eve, asking, Are there any good children in here? before leaving gifts for the children. Much like the Nesser and the Tomter, on Christmas Eve, homes in Nordic countries leave out the bowls of Julgroot for the Julen Nesser and the Julen Tomter. In the modern day, these traditions are deeply ingrained in many Nordic country families. You will find many decorations of the Julen Nesser and the Julen Tomter. In America, you may find these decorations under the name of Christmas gnomes. And now that I know the lore, I cannot wait to fill my home with decorations of the Tomters. Hi, I'm Dana from The Crime Diner. We are a Jersey podcast, and each week we share a story of true crimes, cults, mysteries, historical hilarities, and sometimes victim stories. One of the things that I love to annoy my co-host with is atrocities throughout history. So while we're mostly a true crime podcast, it's not uncommon to hear me babbling on about some old-timey crime or some creep from the past. 
So today, I'd like to tell you about the Christmas truce of World War One. Now, war and fighting is definitely not going to make it on Santa's nice list, but I still found this story really heartwarming. So prior to the invention of modern weapons, most wars were fought hand-to-hand combat on the battlefield. Then, with the introduction of muskets and rifles, soldiers did not have to fight face-to-face, but since these guns were not very accurate, opponents couldn't be much more than about 100 yards from each other, so they would stand in lines and shoot at each other. The common soldier could take three or four shots in a minute with an average load time of 15 to 20 seconds. With World War I came huge changes in technology and the way warfare was waged. The advances with gas, tanks, planes, and other equipment led to some of the most brutal warfare and widespread destruction the world had ever seen. With the accuracy of machine guns and the speed in which the bullets were fired, the style of fighting had to change as well. No longer were soldiers standing in line shooting into the void. Now they were digging trenches and they were fighting from there. The trenches were designed to try to provide the soldiers with some protection from the machine gun fire, aircraft, and chemical warfare. Areas of Belgium and northern France saw the most trench warfare between Germans and the Allied forces. The trench systems on the Western Front were roughly 475 miles long, stretching from the English Channel to the Swiss Alps, although not in a continuous line. Though the trenches offered some protection, they were still incredibly dangerous. The conditions in the trenches were unimaginably horrendous. Trenches in World War I were constructed with sandbags, wooden planks, woven sticks, and tangled barbed wire, sometimes even just mud. The only thing that would be visible from the trenches was a few feet on either side of the walls and the sky above. Depending on the weather, the trenches could be filled with freezing water, mud, or even snow. And despite the use of wooden plank duckboards and sandbags to keep the water out, soldiers on the front line lived in the mud. One British infantry soldier wrote home saying, The mud in Belgium varies in consistency from water to about the thickness of dough ready for the oven. The constant damp often led to conditions known as trench foot. Symptoms would include tingling and or itchy sensation, pain, swelling, cold and blotchy skin, numbness, and prickly or heavy feeling in the foot. The foot may be red and dry and painful even after it becomes warm. Blisters may form, followed by skin and tissue dying and falling off. In severe cases, untreated trench foot can involve amputation of the toe, the heel, or the entire foot. Trenches became trash dumps for debris of war, ammunition boxes, empty cartridges, torn uniforms, shattered helmets, soiled bandages, and bone fragments. Aside from the regular dangers of war, the trenches themselves were super dangerous. They would become living graves when they would collapse in on the soldiers. So these are the conditions that the Germans and Allied soldiers were dealing with during the holiday season of 1914. The war had only begun about six months before this, and most people thought that it would be over relatively quickly and they would be home to their families by the holidays. Not only would the war drag on for four more years, it would prove to be the bloodiest conflict ever up to that time. Before Christmas that year, there were several peace initiatives. An open Christmas letter was a public message for peace addressed to the women of Germany and Austria, and it was signed by 101 British women suffragettes at the end of 1914. On December 7, 1914, the Pope had begged for an official truce between the warring governments. He asked that the guns may fall silent, at least upon the night the angels sang, which was refused by both sides. During the war, there had been small instances that could be considered truces, There were regular half-hour truces each evening to recover dead soldiers for burial, during which the French and German soldiers exchanged newspapers. When rations were brought up to the front lines after dusk, soldiers on both sides would note periods of peace just so they could go collect their food. The proximity to the trench lines made it easy for soldiers to shout greetings to each other, and this would have been the most common method of arranging informal truces. Many German soldiers had worked in London prior to the war, so they were able to speak some of the same language. One unusual thing that began to occur in some of the more peaceful sectors was the introduction of music. Soldiers on both sides would sing, and it was clear that the intention was to either entertain the other side or maybe even gently taunt them. This became more festive as the holiday season grew nearer. Christmas Eve 1914, around 10 p.m., the Germans placed candles on their trenches and on the Christmas tree and then continued to celebrate by singing Christmas carols. The British responded by singing Christmas carols of their own. This did not just happen in one location. It happened all across the Western Front. Soon, there were excursions into no man's land, which is an area between the two trenches. 
Here, the soldiers exchanged small gifts, such as food, tobacco, alcohol, souvenirs, buttons, and hats. There was even a British soldier that set up a makeshift barber, charging Germans just a few cigarettes for a haircut. Many accounts of the truce involved one or more football matches that were played in no man's land. To those of us who are listening that are American, this would be called soccer. It was not all fun and games. The silence of the fighting allowed both sides to breathe a little bit. They were able to clean up the trenches, fortify the sturdiness of the sides, build drains to remove some of the water to help create better living conditions. They were also able to collect their recently killed friends, bury them, and even hold small funeral services for them. Most of the people were thrilled by the spontaneous harmony that broke out on both sides, but of course, not everyone was pleased. In one account, a German soldier scolded his fellow soldiers during the Christmas truce. Such a thing should not happen in wartime. Have you no German sense of honor left? That 25-year-old soldier's name was Adolf Hitler. There are two Christmas truce memorials, one in France and one in England. Obviously, the truce did not end the Great War, but the peace did last for a few short days, and almost all who was involved remember the time fondly. Season's Greetings This is Kiki, the producer and chief researcher for the Pennsylvania-based podcast, Mission Spooky. I'm usually joined by my host, JC, a former paranormal investigator, and my co-host, Cord, a former ghost chaser and professional wrestler. We usually dive into some very disturbing subjects, such as ghostly encounters, weird legends of the Northeast, and even some true crime connected to paranormal activity. But today, we decided to slip away from the naughty side and share a delightful and a bit weird custom from the Yuletide season in our neck of the woods. And that tradition is the Weihnachtsgook, or the Christmas pickle. You might be shocked to see a glass pickle hanging among the usual ornaments of the Yule season, but it's actually quite fortuitous. Those who find the Christmas pickle first are often rewarded with anything from crisp bills to getting to open the first gift to having the coveted job of handing out the gifts or even an extra present. In my family, there are four of us and three pickles. Our prizes are scratch-off tickets. Whoever finds the first pickle gets five tickets, the second gets four tickets, the third gets three tickets, and whoever finds no pickle still gets two tickets. It's always fun to see when the person who only gets the two tickets win on both of them, and no one else does. Thus, it's still a fun and fair game to play with all of us grown children. But where did this weird tradition come from? Most people believe it is a German tradition brought here by German immigrants. I'm lucky enough to have an array of European immigrants in my family, most only being in the U.S. for two or three generations. Italians, Norwegians, English, and Germans. But it wasn't my German family who brought this tradition with us. Our family didn't add the pickle to the tree until we were young children, three generations in. And even then, it was our neighbors who came across the lovely little green glass gherkins in one of their travels outside of Pennsylvania. We were gifted this adorable ornament, which came with a brief history explaining its origins in German tradition. It was instantly added to our Yule tree, but we were stumped as to why this, quote, German tradition was never taught to us by our German immigrant great-grandparents. Well, that's because it's not entirely German tradition. As a matter of fact, in a recent survey, only 8% of Germans knew about the Pickle Christmas connection, and of those, only 2% of them practiced any kind of family tradition around the ornament. There are also several legends, supposedly from Germany, explaining how the pickle weaved its way into Christmas legend. The first story takes us to a small town in Michigan, known for its cucumbers, called Berrien Springs. While they are the self-proclaimed Christmas pickle capital of the world, and also uncontested title, former and current residents seem to disagree on whether that statement is true. I've seen some arguments saying that the small town never had a Christmas pickle festival, while others say it was there, but not as grand as described online. Either way, Berrien Springs appears to be the origin of the first legend of the pickle. 
set anywhere from the Middle Ages to the Victorian era, it is as follows. There were two Spanish boys walking home from boarding school, ready to enjoy their Christmas holiday with family. They are jumped by a nefarious innkeeper and trapped inside an old pickle barrel. No word on what exactly he was going to do with them. But they are freed by St. Nick when he taps on the top of the barrel with his staff and they're able to return home safely. Another story comes from the American Civil War and a Bavarian-born soldier named John C. Lauer. He served in the 103rd Pennsylvania Infantry, was captured in North Carolina in 1864, and sent to prison at Fort Sumner. According to the Lauer family history, by Christmas Eve, he was starving and near death. He asked a guard for a pickle, which the guard provided. Miraculously, John recovered and credited the pickle with saving his life. After the war ended in 1865, he returned to his family in Pennsylvania and began a Christmas tradition of hiding a real pickle on the Christmas tree each year, with the first person to find it gaining good fortune and health in the coming year. Over the years, the above two stories have been debunked, and the truth seems to be a lot less exciting and more about starting a tradition to sell particular items. In the small town of Lausche, Germany, known as the birthplace for glass blowing since 1597, the first glass blown Christmas tree ornaments in the shape of nuts and fruits, including the pickle, were produced in 1847. In the 1880s, a creative salesman came up with the pickle tradition in order to sell more of the Lausche glass ornaments in America. In the 1890s, a company called Old World Christmas Shop began selling the Christmas pickle along with a pamphlet explaining this, quote, tradition. As far as selling ornaments from Lausche, it's worked out brilliantly. You can go to Old World Christmas Shop online right now and purchase your own Christmas pickle. While the shop contains many beautiful and one-of-a-kind glass ornaments, Everything from horseshoe crabs to licensed glass Twinkies to sugar skulls, Americans have purchased 25,000 pickles just in 2017 alone. That year, they made roughly $175,000 in just glass pickles. And there you have it, folks, the legends, lore, and tradition of the Christmas pickle. Happy holidays and thank you for listening to this story and all the stories brought to you by the Darkcast Network this Yuletide season. You can find Mission Spooky as well as all the Darkcast podcasts on the most popular podcast platforms. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Spooky. We'd love to hear if you too have a Christmas pickle tradition. We take our four-week break in January with our next season four coming out in February. In the meantime, feel free to listen to our latest episodes, which include interviews with horror author Max Hawthorne, paranormal investigator and member of the Taps family, John Curley, on his new book, Unholy Structure, now available on Amazon, and author and folklore expert Chad Lewis on his new book of Yuletime Scary Legends entitled Winter Legends and Lore, also available on Amazon. As always, stay spooky and don't die. But if you do, contact us. Hey there, this is CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBTQ+. The holiday story I have for you today was written by L. Frank Baum. And some of you might recognize that name. L. Frank Baum is the author of The Wizard of Oz. So without further ado, here is the story, A Kidnapped Santa Claus. Santa Claus lives in the Laughing Valley, where stands the big rambling castle in which his toys are manufactured. His workmen, selected from the rills, nooks, pixies, and fairies, live with him, and everyone is as busy as can be from one year's end to another. It's called the Laughing Valley because everything there is happy and gay. On one side is the mighty forest of Burzee, at the other side stands the huge mountain that contains the caves of the demons. One would think that our good old Santa Claus, who devotes his days to making children happy, would have no enemies on all the earth. 
and as a matter of fact, for a long period of time, he encountered nothing but love wherever he might go. But the demons who live in the mountain caves grew to hate Santa Claus very much, and all for the simple reason that he made children happy. The caves of the demons are five in number. A broad pathway leads up to the first cave, which is a finely arched cavern at the foot of the mountain, the entrance being beautifully carved and decorated. In it resides the demon of selfishness. Back of this is another cavern inhabited by the demon of envy, the cave of the demon of hatred next in order, and through this one passes to the home of the demon of malice. Situated in a dark and fearful cave in the very heart of the mountain, I do not know what lies beyond this. Some say there are terrible pitfalls leading to death and destruction, and this may very well be true. However, from each of the four caves mentioned, there is a small, narrow tunnel leading to the fifth one, a cozy little room occupied by the Demon of Repentance. And as the rocky floors of these passages are well worn by the track of passing feet, I judge that many wanderers in the cave of the demons have escaped through the tunnels to the abode of the Demon of Repentance, who is said to be a pleasant sort of fellow, who gladly opens for one a little door admitting you into fresh air and sunshine again. Well, these demons of the caves, thinking they had great cause to dislike old Santa, held a meeting one day to discuss the matter. I'm really getting lonesome, said the demon of selfishness, for Santa distributes so many pretty Christmas gifts to all the children that they become happy and generous through his example, and they keep away from my cave. I'm having the same trouble, rejoined Demon of Envy. The little ones seem quite content with Santa Claus, and there are few I can coax to become envious. And that makes it bad for me, declared the Demon of Hatred. For if no children pass through the caves of selfishness and envy, none can get to my cavern. Or to mine, added the Demon of Malice. For my part, said the Demon of Repentance, it is easily seen that if the children do not wish to visit your caves, they have no need to visit mine, so that I am quite as neglected as you are. And all because of this person they call Santa Claus, exclaimed the Demon of Envy. He is simply ruining our business, and something must be done at once. To this they all readily agreed. But what to do was another and more difficult matter to settle. They knew that Santa Claus worked all through the year at his castle in the Laughing Valley, preparing the gifts he was to distribute on Christmas Eve. They resolved to try to tempt him into their caves. That might lead him on the terrible pitfalls that ended in destruction. So the very next day, while Santa was busy at work, surrounded by his little band of assistants, the demon of selfishness came to him and said, These toys are wonderfully bright and pretty. Why do you not keep them for yourself? It's a pity to give them to those noisy boys and fretful girls who break and destroy them so quickly. Nonsense, cried the old greybeard, his eyes bright, twinkling merrily as he turned towards the tempting demon. The boys and girls are never so noisy and fretful after receiving my presents, and if I can make them happy for one day in the year, I am quite content. So the demon went back to the others who awaited him in their caves and said, I have failed, for Santa Claus is not at all selfish. The following day, the demon of envy visited Santa Claus. The toy shops are full of playthings quite as pretty as those you are making. What a shame it is that they should interfere with your business. They make toys by machinery much quicker than you can make them by hand, and they sell them for money, while you get nothing at all for your hard work. But Santa refused to be envious of the toy shops. I could supply the little ones but once a year, on Christmas Eve. 
for the children are many, and I am but one, and my work is one of love and kindness. I would be ashamed to receive money for my little gifts. But throughout all the year the children must be amused in some way, and so the toy shops are able to bring much happiness to my little friends. And I like the toy shops, and I'm glad to see them prosper. In spite of the second rebuff, the demon of hatred thought he would try to influence Santa Claus. So the next day he entered the busy workshop and said, Good morning, Santa. I have bad news for you. Then run away like a good fellow, answered Santa Claus. Bad news is something that should be kept secret and never told. You cannot escape this, however, declared the demon. For in the world there are a good many who do not believe in Santa Claus, and these you are bound to hate bitterly, since they have wronged you. Stuff and rubbish, cried Santa. And there are others who resent your making children happy, and who sneer at you and call you a foolish old rattlepate. You are quite right to hate such base slanderers, and you ought to be revenged upon for their evil words. But I don't hate them, exclaimed Santa Claus positively. Such people do me no real harm, but merely render themselves and their children unhappy. Poor things. I'd much rather help them any day than injure them. Indeed, the demons could not tempt old Santa Claus in any way. On the contrary, he was shrewd enough to see their object in visiting him was to make mischief and trouble, and his cheery laughter disconcerted the evil ones and showed them to the folly of such an undertaking. So they abandoned the honeyed words and determined to use force. It was well known that no harm can come to Santa Claus while he is in the Laughing Valley, for the fairies and riles and nooks all protect him, but on Christmas Eve he drives his reindeer out into the big world, carrying a sleigh load of toys and pretty gifts to the children. And this was the time and the occasion when his enemies had the best chance to injure him. So the demons laid their plans and awaited the arrival of Christmas Eve. The moon shone big and white in the sky, and the snow lay crisp and sparkling on the ground as Santa Claus cracked his whip, and he sped away out of the valley into the great world beyond. The roomy sleigh was packed full with huge sacks of toys, and as the reindeer dashed onward, our jolly old Santa laughed and whistled and sang for very joy, for in all his merry life, this was the one day in the year when he was the happiest. It would be a busy night for him, he well knew. As he whistled and shouted and cracked his whip again, he reviewed in his mind all the towns and cities and farmhouses and figured that he had just enough presents to go around and make every child happy. Suddenly, a strange thing happened. A rope shot through the midnight, and a big noose that was at the end of it settled over the arms and body of Santa Claus. Before he could resist or even cry out, he was jerked from the seat of the sleigh, and he tumbled head foremost into a snowbank. Such a surprising experience confused old Santa for a moment, and when he had collected his senses, he found that the wicked demons had pulled him from the snowdrift and bound him tightly with many coils of stout rope, and then they carried the kidnapped Santa Claus away to their mountain. <laughs> laughed the demons, rubbing their hands together with cruel glee. What will the children do now? How they will cry and storm when they find out there are no toys in their stockings. And what a lot of punishment they will receive from their parents. And how they will flock to our caves of selfishness and envy and hatred and malice. Now it so chanced that on Christmas Eve, the good Santa Claus had taken with him in his sleigh Nutter the Ryle, Peter the Nook, Kilter the Pixie, and a small fairy named Whisk. 
his four favorite assistants, and when their master was so suddenly dragged from the sleigh, they were all snugly tucked underneath the seat. The tiny immortals knew nothing of the capture of Santa Claus until some time after he had disappeared. And as their master always sang or whistled on his journey, the silence warned them that something was wrong. Little Whisk stuck out his head from underneath the seat, and he found Santa Claus gone, and no one to direct the flight of reindeer. Whoa! he called out, and the deer obediently slackened speed and came to a halt. Peter and Nutter and Kilter all jumped out of the seat and looked back over the track made by the sleigh, but Santa Claus had been left miles and miles behind. What shall we do? asked Whisk anxiously. We must go back at once and find our master, said Nutter the Ryle. Now, now, exclaimed Peter the Nook. If we delay or go back, there'll be no time to get the toys to the children before morning, and that would grieve Santa Claus more than anything else. It is certain that some wicked creature had captured him, added Kilter thoughtfully, and your object must be to make the children unhappy. So our first duty is to get the toys distributed as carefully as if Santa Claus were himself present. Afterwards, we can search for our master and easily secure his freedom. This seemed such good and sensible advice that the others at once resolved to adopt it. They came to the houses wherein the children lay sleeping and dreaming of the pretty gifts they would find on Christmas morning. The little immortals had set themselves a difficult task, for although they had assisted Santa Claus on many of his journeys, their master had always directed and guided them and told them exactly what he wished for them to do. But now they had to distribute the toys according to their own judgment and they did not understand children as well as old Santa, so it's no wonder they made some laughable errors. Mamie Brown, who wanted a doll, got a drum instead, and Charlie Smith, who delights to romp and play out of doors, and who wanted some new rubber boots to keep his feet dry, he received a sewing box, which made him so provoked that he thoughtlessly called our dear old Santa Claus a fraud. Had there been many such mistakes, the demons would have accomplished their evil purpose and made the children unhappy. But the little friends of the absent Santa Claus labored faithfully and intelligently to carry out their master's ideas, and they made fewer errors than might be expected under unusual circumstances. Having put the deer in the stable, the little folk began to wonder how they might rescue their master and they realized they must discover, first of all, what had happened to him and where he was. Whisk the fairy transported himself to the bower of the fairy queen, which was located deep in the heart of the forest of Bursey, and once there it did not take him long to find out about the naughty demons and how they had kidnapped the good Santa Claus to prevent his making children happy. The fairy queen also promised her assistance, and then, fortified by this powerful support, Whisk flew back to where Nutter, Peter, and Kilter awaited him. The four counseled each other and laid plans to rescue their master from his enemies. It is possible that Santa Claus was not as merry as usual during the night that succeeded his capture, for although he had faith in the judgment of his little friends, he could not avoid a certain amount of worry, and the demons who guarded him by turns one after another did not neglect to taunt him with contemptuous words in his helpless condition. When Christmas Day dawned, the demon of malice was guarding the prisoner, and his tongue was sharper than that of any of the others. The children are waking up, Santa. They're waking up to find their stockings empty. <laughs> How they will quarrel and wail and stamp their feet in anger. Our caves will be full today, old Santa. But to this, as to other like taunts, Santa answered nothing. He was much grieved by his capture, it is true, but his courage did not forsake him and finding that the prisoner would not reply to his jeers. The demon of malice presently went away, 
and sent the demon of repentance to take his place. My brother demons do not trust me over much, said he as he entered the cavern. But it is my morning now, and the mischief is done. You cannot visit the children again for another year. The little ones will be greatly disappointed, but that cannot be helped now. Their grief is likely to make the children selfish and envious and hateful. And if they come to the caves of demons today, I shall get a chance to lead some of them to my cave of repentance. Do you ever repent yourself? asked Santa curiously. Oh, yes, indeed, answered the demon. I am even now repenting that I assisted in your capture. Of course, it's too late to remedy the evil that has been done. Yet you, you have done no evil, are about to visit my cave at once. For to prove that I sincerely regret my share of your capture, I am going to permit you to escape. The fellow at once busied himself untying the knots that bound Santa Claus and unlocking the chains that fastened him to the wall. Then he led the way through a long tunnel until they both emerged in the cave of repentance. I hope you'll forgive me. I'm really not a bad person, you know, and I believe I accomplish a great deal of good in the world. With this, he opened a back door that let a flood of sunshine in, and Santa sniffed the fresh air gratefully. Said he to the demon in a gentle voice, I'm sure the world would be a dreary place without you. So good morning and a Merry Christmas to you. With these words, he stepped out to greet the bright morning, and a moment later he was trudging along, whistling softly to himself. As for the wicked demons of the caves, they were filled with anger and chagrin when they found that their clever capture of Santa Claus had come to naught. Indeed, no one that Christmas day appeared to be at all selfish or envious or hateful. And realizing that while the children's saint had so many powerful friends, it was folly to oppose him, the demons never again attempted to interfere with his journeys on Christmas Eve. Thank you so much for tuning in to Darkcast Network's Holiday Stories, The Naughty or Nice Lists. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed presenting you these stories. Be sure to check out all the incredible shows on Darkcast Network by visiting our website at darkcastnetwork.wixsite, that's W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com backslash indie, I-N-D-I-E. And follow us at Darkcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, come to the dark side of podcasts. We have cookies. And happy holidays, everyone.